You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. Science news stories normally revolve around something new that's been learned or some question that's been answered, but sometimes, and these are often the most interesting times, there's an observation or discovery that raises a whole new set of questions and the mystery deepens. One such mystery in astronomy is the phenomenon known as fast radio bursts, and we'll come to them later. First of all, I want to talk about another recent discovery of a somewhat mysterious event. The event in question was a gravitational wave detection made back in 2019 but released just last month. We discussed gravitational waves a number of times on Pythagorean astronomy before, these ripples in space that are caused by, among other things, massive objects spiralling in and merging. To understand why this discovery is peculiar, I spoke to two colleagues from Cardiff University, Dr Fabio Antonini and graduate student Charlie Hoy. Charlie led one of the aspects of the analysis of this event, and I began by asking him to explain how the analysis works. Once the gravitational wave detectors um, measure the gravitational wave, these tiny ripples, um, we're able to use very sophisticated codes to be able to search in this data to be able to find these tiny gravitational waves amongst the noise. And we were able to find that there was this hint at a gravitational wave signal hidden in the noise. Um, and we were then able to do something called parameter estimation, um, which is the part that I played. Um, so parameter estimation is basically a technique to estimate the properties of the binary um, that produced the observed gravitational wave signal. So what we basically do is we assume a model for what we expect gravitational waves to look like um, as a function of masses, uh, spins, etc. And we basically calculate millions of waveforms for many different combinations of these masses and spins and compare each of them to the data collected from the gravitational wave detectors. And what we do is we calculate what's known as a likelihood. Um, and we're able, this is basically um, something which tells us how likely that particular model is in the data. Um, and we do this millions of times. And by looking at which one maximizes this likelihood, we're able to find out which model and which parameters um, this binary had, which produced this gravitational wave signal. So this is something that's done on, it's, it's not normally done on people's laptops or anything. This is done on, on, you said, millions of times. This is supercomputers around the world or big computing clusters, I guess, is the, is the term that would be used now. To, um, exactly. It's, uh, it's an extremely difficult problem to solve uh, and one that takes up a lot of time on computers. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, we can't run it just on our laptops. <laughs> so, uh, Fabio, when we're when we're looking at these uh, these events, just in general, what kind of uh, parameters, what properties of these systems are we uh, investigating? So we're investigating uh, the masses of the uh, of the two objects that merge and produce the gravitational wave signal that Charlie and the LIGO collaboration uh, uh, have detected. Uh, and the mass tells us um, of the objects, tells us whether uh, what type of objects they are, whether they are uh, neutron stars, uh, if their mass is below uh, about 2.2 solar masses, uh, or whether they are black holes, even more extreme objects uh, with masses above uh, uh, 2.2 uh, solar masses. And uh, so the other uh, other parameters that we look at are uh, the spin of the uh, of the objects that uh, might tell us about the uh, how the 
binary uh, has formed uh, and evolved uh, to become a, a gravitational wave uh, wave source. Um, and these are basically the two uh, physical properties uh, that uh, one can derive by uh, the analysis that uh, Charlie uh, is doing. Now, in general, when we talk about these gravitational wave sources, uh, the majority of the ones that have been detected so far have been binary black holes. So these are thought to be the dead remnants of massive stars that have left behind a black hole, um, normally uh, the ones that have been observed tens of times uh, the mass of the sun. There's a few others that, as Fabio mentioned, might be neutron stars. So these are the remnants of slightly less solar, uh, less massive uh, stars that have left behind rather than a black hole, uh, sort of the dead core of the star uh, uh, there. And that could have happened a long time ago and it could have taken uh, hundreds of millions or probably billions of years for those two objects to spiral in and uh, all we see is that final uh, final point of the merger. But this event was slightly different. So Charlie, what was uh, initially in the data, what, what was unusual about this event? Yes, yeah, so as you mentioned, GW1908-14 is, is a binary merger, just like everything else we've seen so far. Um, but what makes this event so extraordinary um, is that this signal is likely to have come from the merger of a black hole of mass around 23 solar masses and another object um, measuring just 2.6 solar masses. So it's this secondary object that makes this event so extraordinary um, because for decades, astronomers have observed two distinct populations of compact objects. They've um, found neutron stars, um, with masses no more than around 2.4 to 2.5 solar masses, and black holes with masses starting from around five solar masses. And astronomers have always puzzled by this apparent mass gap between these two populations. And what we found with this event is that this secondary object lies in this mass gap. So Fabio, this is a, this is a mystery that's been going on for, for decades as to, to why there are no objects that seem to have this uh, masses in this particular range. So as Charlie said, it's it's somewhere in the range of between about two and a half and five solar masses. We've never seen uh, anything in that range uh, before that's a compact object, so that, you know, a neutron star uh, or a black hole. Um, what are the possible reasons thought to be for, for why you can't get more massive neutron stars or you can't get less massive uh, black holes? Well, there is not uh, really a clear theoretical reason why there shouldn't be any... Uh... Uh, neutron star or black hole in this uh, in this range. Uh, it is mostly an observational fact when you look at uh, black holes and uh, uh, so before LIGO um, we detected other black holes and neutron stars through their electromagnetic counterparts um, and uh, electromagnetic emission. And uh, so that's just the light, the X-rays and so on that are coming off the uh, the, the objects. Yeah. Yes, so through the, the light, em light emitted by the uh, by the systems and the, what we found, what uh, astronomers uh, found is that the, there is a lack of, of uh, compact objects with masses approximately between two to five uh, solar masses. And this is this has been um, a, uh, a problem that has been going on for, for decades. Uh, for decades, astronomers have uh, been asking why and there is this lack of uh, uh, of objects in this in this mass range, and now uh, this discovery is really a game changer because it's shown for the first time that really there isn't any uh, any mass gap uh, in uh, in between neutron stars and black holes. So, uh, black holes are some of the most, in some senses, 
perhaps non-intuitively, some of the most simple objects you can imagine. They, they have very few parameters. They have very few properties. They have a mass. They have a, a spin and possibly uh, an electric charge. And so there's no, as you said, there's, there's no reason they can't be any mass, really. You could have black holes that with a mass of a proton. They could be really tiny. You could have black holes. We know of black holes that are millions or billions of times the mass of our sun. They can have any mass range any mass in, in that entire range. Neutron stars are a bit more complicated because there's actually matter there. Um, so there, there are, one of the problems is we don't really, we don't fully understand neutron stars and, and what they're like, do we? So there, are there constraints on, on neutron stars and, and what masses they can have? Uh, yes, there are constraints that come from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, nuclear physics, uh, but uh, the um, uh, so the range of uh, masses that can be um, um, uh, let's say covered by by neutron star is not as uh, well defined, um, but it should be anything above uh, two. So nuclear physics predicts that anything uh, with a mass uh, above a point, uh, about two point two solar masses most probably would form uh, would form a black hole. So most likely this is uh, a black hole binary uh, black hole binary merger uh, rather than a black hole neutron star uh, merger okay so so it's thought that this is this is more likely to be a, a black hole that's just less massive than we we've, we've seen before and are, are there reasons thought for for why we've not seen black holes or any any objects in this kind of or any compact objects in this this mass range before is it just pure chance or is it just because they're hard to see what's the what's the thinking behind the the origin of this mass gap uh, well, uh, it is essentially an observational, uh, um, again, an observational problem. So observational, we don't really see any uh, compact objects in this, in this mass range. And uh, um, one explanation for this is that when you, uh, when you form a black hole uh, um, during the collapse of the, of the star into the, uh, into the compact objects, when the black hole is forming, most of the envelope uh, of the star uh, is accreted into the into the core, uh, leading to uh, in, an increase of the mass of the compact object above uh, five solar masses. This could be a reason why we don't really see anything uh, in this uh, uh, with uh, very low masses, very uh, low mass black holes. Um, but uh, it is really uh, unclear again why we should not see anything. Uh, in this in this mass range, and for the discovery of uh, Charlie, really, really, and the LIGO collaboration, really, uh, is a um, uh, unprecedented discovery in the sense that solved this problem that uh, uh, was there for for decades. Now we have seen so that it might be that the it's just hard to form black holes in this mass range, which is obviously a good reason for not seeing any. They can't be formed uh, in the first place. But there are two objects that we know of that are in. That range previously, and that's the results that uh, of previous observed uh, binary neutron stars. So, there's two neutron stars, each uh, just under two times the mass of the sun, uh, combining together to form uh, an object that's uh, somewhere around kind of three and a half, four times uh, the mass of the sun or thereabouts. Um, so, is it possible that this mysterious object is the result of a a previous merger that originally there were three objects involved and two forms to create this the lighter one and then the uh, the more massive one was was originally it was always a, always a black hole is that is that a possible mechanism well the other really exciting thing about this uh, object is that we don't really know how it formed 
the uh, formation channels for uh, binary black holes or also for, for uh, any compact object binary binary uh, predict that the merger rate, the rate at which um, objects with such a very high mass ratio, we are talking about a mass ratio of 1 to 10, uh, so at uh, 2.4 solar mass uh, object colliding with a uh, 24 solar mass object. Um, uh, so the, the rate at which this uh, high mass ratio binary should be produced uh, is predicted to be very low. So already the observation of such a high mass ratio uh, binary is very, uh, is very puzzling. Um, one possibility is that, uh, as you mentioned, is that uh, the primary black hole, uh, one way to solve this problem is that the primary black hole comes from, uh, from a previous uh, merger in a triple system. Uh, so what, what we know uh, from observations of the, uh, the massive stars in, in the solar neighborhood is that most massive stars are in uh, high multiplicity systems. They are in uh, binaries, but uh, actually most of them uh, are in triples or, uh, or quadruples or even higher multiplicity uh, systems. And so you can imagine that um, you know, in these uh, configurations, uh, um, multiple mergers could, could happen. Uh, leading to the uh, formation of um, um, asymmetric mass ratio uh, uh, binaries, like uh, the one that has been observed. It's certainly a, an interesting prospect to think of the uh, the the origin of this event and and uh, how it might have uh, how such an unusual object could have uh, come to be. Um, so. Uh, Charlie, with the uh, with the analysis that's gone on, that obviously the, the the data and the, the the scientific paper have been published now. Is there is there more investigation to do, or are we at the point where there's not a lot more that can be got out of the gravitational wave data? So I think people will always try and look at the gravitational wave data and try and look and determine what the secondary object could be. I think that we won't be able to determine what this object is from the gravitational wave data. I think the only way we'll be able to figure it out is by observing more of these systems, by observing more binary neutron stars, and eventually trying to work out what the equation of state of a neutron star is, and therefore the maximum allowed neutron star mass. But of course, people will continue to look at the data and try and get out as much information as possible. So in the, in the future, then the next time we discover something uh, that is you know, this kind of event with a high mass ratio with an object that might be in this this unusual range uh, of masses. What do we as in the scientific community, the astronomical community need to do to be able to learn more about it? So I guess if, if, if money were no object um, and and we said, right, we can we can suddenly magic into existence, you know, a, a, a set of telescopes or, or, or instruments or whatever. What would we need to know more about these kind of events uh, in the future? So unfortunately, we don't expect to be able to see any electromagnetic radiation from these type of events, especially for the high mass ratio cases like GW1914, because it's thought that the neutron star would just fall straight into the black hole without being ripped apart. Um, and therefore, there wouldn't be any electromagnetic radiation emitted. So therefore, again, even if we had all of the um, optical telescopes or all of the other sorts of telescopes in the world, we still wouldn't be able to know if this was a neutron star or not. Um, which is why I think the only way is just to sit back, have more gravitational wave detectors and just keep observing uh, more of these systems.
And I guess, uh, Fabio, you mentioned that this is this is an unusual event. So as Charlie says, we, we can carry on observing. We can get many, many more of these. Um, and the, the key, therefore, is to, to build up a really big um, catalogue over years, over coming years of observing runs to, to try and figure out this, this population. It becomes like much of astronomy, almost a statistical problem rather than looking at each individual event. Is that fair? Yeah, I think this is uh, this is fair. But uh, we are a very good uh, at a very good point, and this uh, already became uh, clear with the first detection of LIGO. Uh, only after one week, LIGO uh, the advanced LIGO interferometer was uh, uh, turned on. We uh, detected one source, so this means that over the next uh, years we will detect um, many other sources that will allow a comparison with uh, theoretical models and. Uh, I hope that at some point we will really be able to use all this uh, data to uh, to determine how the sources are produced and to learn uh, other important uh, uh, things like, uh, as you mentioned, the question of state for uh, for neutron stars, for example. It's certainly, as you say, a very exciting time to be involved. Now, this event was came out of the uh, the third observing run, the dubbed O3 of the LIGO and Virgo detectors. Uh, and uh, there are there are dozens of candidate events uh, still to be uh, still being analysed uh, from that uh, from that observing run, and so um, uh, I guess uh, it's important to, to keep your eyes peeled or keep your ears ears tuned in to, to future announcements uh, from the the dozens of events from this uh, from, from this observing run. It, work has certainly not stopped, I guess, Charlie. A hundred percent. We're still analysing the data, as you say. And there's still a lot more that we're trying to understand from the uh, from the third observing run at the moment. So many more discoveries to come from gravitational wave detections over the coming months and years. You're listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, and let's move now onto the mysterious fast radio bursts that I promised at the start. First discovered in 2007, these brief bursts of radio waves are notoriously hard to catch. But over the last decade or so, radio astronomers have got better at finding and observing them. The latest discovery in the unravelling detective story was made by the CHIME telescope. It involves a fast radio burst that appears to repeat on a roughly 16-day timescale. The study was led by Dongja Lee, a graduate student in Toronto University, and I began by asking her to explain what a fast radio burst is. Ah, uh, yes, the name is very... <laughs> self-explanatory um, so so they're fast so it's usually millisecond duration so they they are detected in radio frequencies so the frequency similar to our telephone band and also they are extremely powerful so um, so they're coming from a very uh, distant a uh, very far away distance um, outside of our galaxy and and considering their distance the weakest birds we see are able to boil 10 to the 23 tons of water so it's a hundred sextillion water so they're very powerful bursts happening in very short duration and and we, we still don't know uh, from from a very far away distance and we still don't know what is causing them so given, given that these are so very bright, uh, why did it take so long, to, or why did we only find them in 2007? Um, I think this is partly related to um, the time resolution of our instrument. We don't, we don't usually use to search for 
very short duration things we usually like integrate for some time and because those bursts are only last for like milliseconds so previously when you integrate they, they just disappear because yeah because they're short so so you're used to looking at with radio telescope you look at radio galaxies or any sort of emission out in the universe that is um that that it takes place and, and changes on normally timescales of millions of years right these things are um typically yeah. very slowly changing so there's there's no point in trying to take uh, fast observations i guess and they just get averaged out they get blurred out essentially is that is that a fair yeah. fair summary yeah exactly yes um what kind of frequencies are we talking about with these radio telescopes? A uh, few hundred megahertz to a few gigahertz. Okay, so so higher frequency than um, you know your FM radio and so on. When when you use a radio te- te- uh, telescope to to detect them with, uh, I know this this was with the the Chime telescope. Um, what's the Chime telescope like? Is it is it one telescope? Is it an array of telescopes? The first one is discovered by Parkes telescope, so they are single dish, mm-hmm. and also the first few FRBs are detected all by single dish. But Chime is uh, is several like it, it's very non traditional. It's it's for twenty by hundred meter uh, cylinder pointing south north direction, and each cylinder has um, two hundred fifty six um, like those kind of phone telephone receivers and which will observe the frequency at four to eight hundred megahertz so it's a, it's it's very different to what people might think of with a, a typical radio telescope it would look very odd in fact most people probably wouldn't recognize it like a radio telescope i guess yeah yeah they're 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 very odd they don't look like telescopes yeah, but the the main motivation is because, like, a, uh, for a single dish, you're only able to look at a small um, fraction of sky, while um, while those events are pretty rare. And so, so you want a telescope that can look at a larger uh, fraction of sky, and it can like uh, survey across the sky to see more bursts. And, and so, time is designed like that because they're like a cylinders so so in the south north direction they don't focus so they can see a very large actually they can see 120 degrees south north um while three degrees uh, east west however the earth is rotating so they can actually span across the sky so they they basically could see the uh, full northern hemisphere very it every day like that Mm-hmm. And this is all due to the way that the, the, the telescopes are, are combined together with sort of the analysis and so on to get to get all the the, the images out. And it's a, it's a, a remarkable um, a remarkable process or this 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 interferometry with, with multiple dishes and so on. But but with with fast radio bursts, so they were found in the first one was found in two thousand and seven, as you, as we said, uh, and there were mm-hmm. there have been a few more found uh, since then. But as you mentioned, the first few were just individual events and could potentially have been a glitch in the data or, or something, albeit a very um, a very peculiar looking uh, glitch, a bit of, bit of uh, you know, erroneous signal in the data. Um, what, were the, what were the thoughts about what they could be and how has that kind of changed with time? There are ranges. At first, they don't, people don't believe it. 
and also there was a time when like uh, some signals from microwave oven actually mixed in and consider one type of FRB, but but that was later on figure out it's actually microwave oven. So there are uh, some some time like people don't believe it, and and later on because there are single events, so there are theories about catastrophic events like some um, breakup of like a, a compact stars, some some destroying catastrophic events because they are just single bursts and they're extremely powerful and short. However, in 2012, so they, they find a um, source that actually could emit burst from time to time. So it's not a one and then nothing, but, but they will come back after some time. So it can be catastrophic. It has to be some, some some system that could last longer and and also because it can um, repeat so people are able to um, track it with like a um, instruments with better resolution and they're able to localize it to a dwarf galaxies a star forming dwarf, dwarf galaxies because in the star forming so there are uh, lots of superluminous supernova um, and also in the first uh, uh, in the observation of the first repeater, they find a continuous radio source, which is often related to superluminous supernova. So they they're trying to find that maybe it's it's the burst of the, some some neutron star. So due to processes that we we don't fully understand, I guess, with exploding stars, supernovae with stars forming, and and the way the material interacts with with you know these hot dead uh, dead, dead cores of old stars. So thing, things that in some senses, new physics that we're just trying to get a handle on, or some of the theories around, I guess, is that is that fair? Yes, yeah. yes, actually, uh, yeah. For for a long time, the theories are more than the observed events. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's just like a, anything that could cause any anything energetic and can happen in a short time scale, and 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 there are lots of guessings. Now, when we see things repeating in astronomy uh it's normally um uh things like a, a process going on and maybe the surface of a star or some object that, that sort of uh, waxes and wanes so you know explodes and then dies down and then comes back again and uh and so on uh, and that can be semi-regular they're not always perfectly regular or it can be something rotating that and we're seeing a, a particular thing that comes into view every now and again um and for for many things like neutron stars those are typically very fast but this latest discovery that you've been involved in that's not the case this latest discovery has um got people scratching their heads all over again hasn't it uh yes um so actually there are there are no lack of efforts to search for periodicity in the in the in the fast radio burst but usually most of the efforts are are at much smaller time scales. And, and Chime get that very nice property that it's it's looking at the sky regularly. So you can actually have regular observations. So we are able to tracking down this uh, periodicity at a time scale of days. And that, that's very difficult to explain with, for example, rotation of some neutron star or so, so it gets to get us to think about some more uh, other other possibility like a like a binary orbit or a precession or um, 
yeah, uh, or or some asteroid orbiting some some neutral magnetar, um, etc. So so yeah, they, they are pointing us to some new directions. Um, but I, I I think in the in the theoretical side, uh, even with this observation, uh, we're not able to nail down or rule out. Uh, well, we probably rule out a truly contest, a truly random procedure, but we're not. Um, pointing out to one direction, but I, I think that the more important thing is like a, um, because it is, uh, we know that this periodicity has to relate it to some environment near the first progenitor, and uh, it 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 points us to lots of great new directions for the follow up study that we think it are pretty pretty promising, and and. Also, um, those scenarios, for example, the binary orbit, like if things are a isolated thing, like lots of things you won't know, for example, the mass, it would be very difficult to know. Um, but if it's in an orbit, uh, there are far more properties in the system that we can extract. So, so that's, that's very exciting. So, yeah. And, and in terms of periodicity, we're talking about this thing, is it about 16 days of, uh, of it takes about 16 days to repeat? Is that... Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so, so for the burst, yeah, we, we see that it um, it repeats it, the pattern would repeat every sixteen days. However, it's not like we know that it has to burst every sixteen days. Half of the bursts are happening in the plus minus one day near the center of the window, while actually the burst could happen in in like a, in a five day active window like that so it's not at all perfectly regular it's not like a regular ticking clock every 16 days it's it's more random than that yeah 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 it, it's more like a, every 16 day there's a window that it could burst but how and like when it, it's actually unknown which is odd, of course, because orbiting systems, you know, binary stars or anything like that, they do tend to be pretty regular. I mean, are there, are there ways you can imagine a binary star system having that kind of a little bit of variation in, in the emission? I mean, that, that's something that sounds to me like it's it's hard to combine that 16 day period, that relatively slow orbiting period compared to things that are normally very, very energetic with that kind of semi semi random or that, that that random aspect to the to the emission so that it's lots of things to try and combine together that i guess we don't normally try and put together in physical theories uh the orbit could be pretty regular that that's okay but uh, but the generation of the burst could still be random um like uh, uh, there, there are generally two types of uh, ways like one is like a, uh, in every 16 days there's a window where the burst could be generated for example if the companion has some wind or jet or something mm -hmm. um, uh, that that is um, uh, disturbing the, the 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 for example magnetars magnetosphere and generate some burst but the disturbing things are sort of random and the power are sort of random and so whenever it's geometrically rich some point uh, there's a chance it could be disturbed and generate some burst and there are also other um, a possibility that it's actually um, the unactive phase are eclipsed so uh, it's like whenever for example the uh, the fast radio bursts are 
behind the disc of the companion or the wing of the companion. Uh, it can't, uh, all the birds can't be seen. However, while it's in the active cycle where there's no nothing to block it, there could still be a random procedure in the in the in the burst itself. The burst procedure could be a coincidence. Uh, you need, for example, suddenly strong wind or something. Mm -hmm. um, that that's irregular. However, the orbital motion could still be regular. Mm. So, so there's a lot of things to, to try and combine together. Now, how, now there's a lot of lot of questions there about what the what the system might be like. Uh, are there any ways we can observe this in more detail with future observations? What what are the plans to try and extract more from this this source, or or search for more sources, or, or find out more about what these things might be? Yeah, this is just one fast radio burst. Of course, we want to see like other fast radio bursts, like a um, whether they also have this kind of periodicity. Um, like if they have periodicity, what is the time scale? Um, and also for this source, you also want to see uh, whether besides this 16 day periodicity, do they still have like a, a for example, if it's an orbit, does it still has its own rotation? So does it still have a smaller time scale periodicity? And also um, we're also interested in like, because the active phase is measured with time telescope at 400 to 800 megahertz. However, uh, currently the reported detection of burst at higher frequencies, like 1.4 gigahertz, they're all, they are appearing at the leading, leading edge of the active phase. We want to see whether this is just coincidence because there's not much samples or really like the active phase are actually changing across frequency because that that's very constraining and and also like we want to see like in, in any uh, mechanism for example uh, at whether precession or like its orbital motion like at different phase of this kind of procedure the magnetic field alignment should be different so we also want to see the properties uh, of the magnetic field uh, during the procedure. So we want to study the polarization. The, the polarization is this, this alignment of, uh, of, of the radio waves. And it normally tells us something, I guess, about the the orientation of what was emitting it. And it tells us something about the, um, or as you say, often, often magnetic fields. The, the polarization can tell us an awful lot of stuff, I guess. Yes. Uh, and also, like, there are other things. For example, um, as I said, like uh, the... Um, the radio wave when it propagates it it will encounter some free electrons so, so that, that's um, just stuff out in space right between us and us and the object it's nothing nothing special it's just what's out there in space yes so for example if if there's a companion it has some wind so very likely for example if it's eclipsing so near the eclipse the the electron density uh, the electron density would raise raises so so it it's possible that uh, near the edge of the active phase, whether whether the total amount of electron it encounters increases, then um, basically anything that also modulates at this 16-day periodicity would be very useful mm -hmm. to study the system. Mm -hmm. So that could mean that the comp a companion object has got this yeah this wind this cloud of stuff around it that's. Um partially well, it's affecting the radio waves as they come through and i guess those are all clues as to what uh, what it might be yeah 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 this one where we find the periodicity is currently the most nearby um localized fast radio burst 
So how far away are we talking? It is 149 megaparsec away. So at redshift point 03, so pretty, pretty close by in terms of cosmology. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's something like 450 million light years or thereabouts, 500 million light years. So it's a, it's a long way in terms of, you know, comparing to the, the, the distance of the, the, uh, the, the shops. But uh, it's, it's close, as you say, on cosmological terms. Um, so it's, it's mm-hmm. in a relatively mm-hmm. nearby... Uh, relatively nearby universe which i guess may, maybe that's why it's been the the, the first one found maybe there are, if there are others further away i guess they'll be fainter yeah 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 exactly that that's that's probably why it's the most active one because it's nearby and uh, so we are easy to detect them and also it's localized to the star forming region of a spiral galaxy um so we know, we know where by... to look for it as well i guess which helps Yes, and also like the same as the first repeater, which is found in a star-forming dwarf galaxy. This one is also in a star-forming region. So because it's powerful, so you would usually expect expect it to be some um, from some, for example, even if it's coming from a magnetar or neutron star, usually we would believe that it's probably some someone very young and energetic so so if it's a the in a for example uh elliptical gas it's it's kind of difficult to explain but if, it, if it's in that star forming star forming region then that's more natural to have those young like a magnetar or young pulsars. and so we, we normally associate or we do associate neutron stars and magnetars which are a highly magnetized neutron star with with dead stars that have come to the end of their lives. But of course, in star-forming regions, we get lots of very, very massive stars that live fast and die young. Uh, so while there are, there are other, far, other stars still forming, you've got these very massive stars that have already created their neutron stars uh, left behind. So this kind of stellar death and stellar formation are, are really intertwined in those reason, regions. It's a fascinating set of, uh, set of discoveries. Uh, and as you said, I mean, this is one fast radio burst. Uh, most fast radio bursts that have been found to repeat have done so on much smaller time scales. Now, you said that that's, um, that's because that's easier to, to look what people have looked for. Is there is there a chance or will Chime be able to see all of those and, and, and study those and look for these long period repeats, do you think? Will, uh, what are the chances of finding more fast radio bursts like the one you just found? I think the chances are pretty high because this is actually the most active fast radio bird, uh, repeating fast radio bursts in, in the time samples. So, so it's very likely that it's just because this one has more samples that we can see this periodicity. Uh, others don't have enough samples for us to see this kind of periodicity. So, so if you, if you just look for like, for, there are only like a very few repeaters has a burst more than more than five bursts. So in, in that very limited example, so you already see one with periodicity, then I think I would expect a lot, like a, actually not a small fraction um, that has periodicity. And, and as we said, that that's that's where Chime and telescopes like Chime come into their own because they can they they get this for free in a sense, whereas whereas other telescopes have to go and point at specific objects at specific times and that's that's a very expensive thing to do and uses up a lot of telescope time so things like telescopes like chime are are gonna probably be a really key part of this solution i guess yeah yeah and and i think chime has a very um we we decide to like uh, um open the data that are 
uh, unpublished. So we have a public website for the repeaters. So whenever we detect the burst, uh, we will just directly put that in the public website. So everyone can look for this kind of signals, not only us. And more people looking is going to well can only help right find find more uh, more more information from these uh, mysterious sources yeah yeah maybe not only like uh, the the periodicity like uh, it would be great if they can find anything else because because at first i'm not looking for the periodicity when i'm looking at the data set it's just a coincidence so i i would very believe that like people when they actually look at this public website they might find something else interesting apart from the some new periodicity there's often stuff in data that uh, that, that is not been not been noticed because uh, not not through lack of trying but just because there's so much of it to search through i guess so it's a it's a, there's i'm sure there are many discoveries to come uh, about flash radio bursts and this this mystery is detective story about what they might be or what type of objects they might be and there may of course be more than one uh, is uh, surely going to evolve over the coming years uh, so uh, dong Zhe-Li, thanks very much thanks that's it for this month my thanks to dong Zhe-Li, charlie hoy and fabio antonini don't forget you can find previous episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk you can also find us on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at AstroPythag. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.